0: All right, so we're going to be finishing uh, Luke chapter sixteen uh, this morning, um, and for those who have been with us, chapter sixteen has been quite peculiar, um, kind of different in the sense the uh, some of the things that Jesus is addressing, the, the kind of parables that he uh, uses to, to to as he as he teaches, and and this morning we're going to look at another parable this morning, which is also a very peculiar uh parable and it's also one of those parables that's kind of in that that famous three all right that famous three kind of what the the prodigal son we, we we did that a couple weeks ago in luke 15 and and then there's the the parable of the the good samaritan and this is this is kind of in that that trifecta of famous big lengthy uh parables and that parable would be the rich man and Lazarus, and I think most of y'all are familiar with with that parable. And and if you are, um, then I think that these um, these beginning words here will, will help make sense us help make sense of that parable. Um, if if we take this parable um, and 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 like many do, and, and just kind of read it and and then on its own, and, and we don't put it in the context of the rest of Luke 16, and including the, the rest of the gospel, you can draw out um, insufficient uh, conclusions. And, and some of those conclusions might be right, but for, for many, they draw out the wrong conclusions looking at this parable. And with those incorrect conclusions, you misapply the text. You misapply the text. You, you teach incorrect Teaching, and so one of those examples would be uh, teaching this text in a way of of looking at a, a social gospel that Jesus is preaching a social social excuse me social justice gospel. Now, truth be told, I think many people stay clear from this text. I think that they that it's kind of like it outweighs the social justice aspect kind of outweighs how you have to handle the way Jesus talks about hell in this passage. Um, They try to manipulate it or misinterpret it in certain ways to teach their social gospel agenda. And some flat out deny and throw out the literal hell and judgment in the passage that Jesus talks about. They call it just, well, that's, That's just how of how serious Jesus is talking and how serious Jesus takes social justice and economic equality. And that's the real take from this passage. But is that the gospel message that Jesus is teaching here? Is, Is that really what Jesus is getting across from what we have encountered throughout Luke 16 and the whole gospel? So in order to be correct, let's just kind of do a quick rundown of chapter 16. And, and mainly this is for Kenny because he wasn't here the last two weeks. Great excuses, but this is for you, brother. All right? good excuses. So, so he has to catch up where we are in 16. So in the beginning, there's a, there's a big parable right there at the beginning, verses 1 through 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them about this dishonest manager. Right? And, and basically, this guy is robbing the, uh, his, the owners blind, right? And, and finally, he figures it out. He's going to fire this joker. And this guy is very shrewd, and he comes up with a scheme and a plan so he doesn't have to go work himself. But he can, he can kind of, in a sense, manipulate his way with other people to, to gain uh, favor with them so that they'll take care of him. They'll invite him to the, his house because they owe him a favor because he he basically cuts their debts in half that he owes the other guy. It's a mess, right? And and Jesus is giving us this parable and he's teaching his, his disciples this parable not to teach them, hey, this is how you need to be with the world, right? This is how dishonest you need to be with the world, no. He's telling them, no, that the shrewdness of this uh, of, of this manager, how he, you just got to give him props because he came up with an, a, a great plan. And, and Jesus is saying, in regards to the, to worldly wealth, the things that we have been given by God to be stewards of, be stewards of and use in a shrewdly way to make the kingdom of God known. So, to be shrewd with our money for the kingdom of God. Because money has a purpose and God has told us what to do with it. And he looks at his disciples, he's teaching them about money and faithfulness and being shrewd. And in verse 13, you can look at it, he leaves no middle ground, does he, with it. You either serve the one, then you hate the other. You either love one, and you hate the other. You serve God, and love God, and you despise the other, or it's the other way around. There's There's no middle ground to the matter. And each time we use our money, each time we use our wealth and the resources that God has given us, we are declaring who our God is. So let's move on. So let's just keep that in context, put that on the table, that money and wealth are on the table here in this chapter. It's being talked about. Now, when you see verse 14, you see that the Pharisees were there, and they responded to Jesus in a way of ridiculing them and and luke gives us that um he gives us that insight there that shows us it tells us that because the pharisees love their money they love their wealth they love the position that it gave them and how it justifies them in front of everybody else they loved it and so they ridiculed jesus because they think money doesn't matter that it doesn't matter what we do with it to God. We are Jews. We are sons of Abraham. It doesn't matter, Jesus. You're ridiculous by saying such things. And so Jesus responds by talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the transition that takes place by basically saying, Pharisees, you have no idea what's happening. There is a higher ethic of the gospel that is being fulfilling, that's fulfilling the Old Testament. So Jesus is showing us in chapter 16 that the Pharisees loved their money because it would justify them in front of man. And then in all their efforts of trying to please God through their obedience... They didn't consider the most important thing, and that was God himself. The most important factor are considering the Lord, what impresses God. And they misused the law in ways that it was never intended to be used. So this is, this is the context now of what we see. This is chapter 16 that brings us up now to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that context of dealing with money, the Old Testament, the law, and the gospel is all wrapped up here in this last parable. Let's look at it together. Verse 19. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously. Isn't that a great word? Sumptuously. Sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be be able to, and none may cross from there to us. Verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that, they may, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. There is a lot happening in this text. And there are a lot of implications within this very important parable. So we've already covered the... The context, but let's back up just a little bit. Look at verse nine. I want to read verse nine to you. And, and as we read verse nine again, I, I want you to ask yourself: Is Jesus unpacking in this parable the coming reality of what he said in verse nine? So, so look at verse nine. He says, "And I tell you, make for friends." For yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings is, is Jesus not in a sense unpacking the reality of verse 9 in this whole entire parable because what happens money fails the rich man it utterly fails him in this parable it, it fails him in the most complete way possible eternally and he didn't even see it coming he failed to do what according to verse 9 to use his worldly wealth to make friends that would what welcome him into eternal dwellings Is, Is that not what we see in this parable whether we realize it or not, money will fail us. It's just worldly things. And if we trust in it, it will eventually betray us. A couple weeks ago, we talked about that. It can can blind us and, and deafen us to the truths of the word of God. But in this passage, Jesus is also using it as a A revealer of whether or not they have an eternal home in heaven or not an eternal home with the Lord or not because in some part if we use our money to advance the cause of Christ in the lives of others or whether you use it to advance your comforts or your status symbol in life that reveals something about what we believe about the gospel Which is exactly the point he makes in verse 11. Look at verse 11 now. He says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? In other words, again, how we handle or steward the money, the wealth, the mammon that we have been given in this life is a sort of test run of eternity. Let me show you what I mean by unpacking this text. We're going to walk through it, we're going to unpack it, and I'm going to show you what I mean in that. There's a stark contrast that is being made in this text, starting in verse 19. You you just see it between the two people, the rich man and Lazarus. There's a contrast in life. Verse 19 is very descriptive for us, isn't it? It it tells us of a man, a man rich man who was literally living like a king. He made himself look like a king. That's what wearing purple does in that first century. That makes you look like a king, someone who's very important. He wore the finest clothes in every single day. He ate the finest of foods. That's saying something in the first century, where meals were generally very meager and humble saying something he ate the best so so in a sense that we we can kind of draw a picture in our mind what kind of man this is the type of person he is the the nicest house in town the the newest of truck the best of vacations the the best of clothes the nicest family His kids go to the best schools this is the kind of guy the kind of picture in our context that we draw and in verse 20 There's a second man. The second man we have, his name is Lazarus. Not to be confused with the Lazarus who's from Bethany. Lazarus, whose name means God helped him. Kind of an ironic thing when you consider his situation in life. He was poor. In fact, he was so poor he had to go to the home of the rich man every day and begged for anything that he could get. It says that he was literally laid at the rich man's door, which is implying that other people had to put him there because he was most likely crippled in some way or another. And the only relief he ever received came from dogs who would lick his sores, Again, another mental image in a sense that we we understand that this is the the destitute of destitute. He was bad off. And Jesus is drawing a stark contrast between the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. And he's doing that for a reason. Because if you remember, the Pharisees would consider a man like Lazarus, who was sick and poor, as someone who was a sinner. He deserved his position in life because he was not like them. He must have did something or why else would God judge them? There's the contrast. He's making this stark contrast because of that. That's what they believed. <clears throat> you did something or someone down in your family did something and you deserve what God is doing to you. also back in the first century, just context, someone like Lazarus, who was poor and destitute, crippled. The Old Testament, required by God, said that these people were to be provided for by the wealthier people of the society. This is also the contrast that he's making, that, that God in his mercy would create in his people a, a system in a sense where the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner would be taken care of. And that's why he was taken to the gate. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8 says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, it says, you shall not harden your heart Or shut your hand against the poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need whatever it may be now that is an important text to remember in this because remember the Pharisees are the guys that said we know the law we're the only ones that got it right and yet Jesus is showing not in this area Because I see, I know how you handle your money. You live for yourself. And the contrasts continue. There was a contrast in life, now there is a contrast in death. Look at verse 22. But they did have one thing in common. They both died. Like all of us, they both died. Isn't it amazing that there Radically different lives still came to an identical end. Think about that for a moment. But just as different as their lives were, as it was carried, as they both were carried into, into death, their lives again were radically different, but now in reverse. The poor man died. Lazarus died. And he was carried into heaven to Abraham's side. And that's, that's heaven. A place of honor to the heavenly feast and joy. The thing that he never had in life. Now again, we have to be careful when we look at Lazarus here. We don't want to make the assumption like so many do. Because Lazarus was not taken to heaven to Abraham's side because he was poor. He wasn't taken to Abraham's side because he was sick or lame and because he had sores all over his body. But what we will see later, according to Abraham, is that it was because he believed God's word and he trusted in God. Now, many want to say that he deserved heaven because of his suffering. But the reality or the context that we will see shows us that Lazarus received the gift of eternal life in Christ despite his situation, despite his situation, and even despite his suffering, he still trusted in the promises of God according to the word of God. We'll see that later on in the text. Now, his hope was not in worldly wealth. He didn't have it. It wasn't even in his suffering. His hope was in God. But contrast that to the rich man. It says that the rich man was buried. Notice how it didn't say Lazarus was. Lazarus was poor. He was sick. He was thrown into the mass graves with all the sick people. Oh, the rich man. He got his beautiful funeral, beautiful grave, spared no expense probably. But what matters Is not how you were buried, but where you go. The rich man was taken to Hades, where all he knows now is what? Not comfort, not good food, not fine clothes, but torment, anguish, and flames. Hades literally means the the realm of death. Jesus is describing for us a real and literal place of torment and anguish. He is describing for us hell. A place that is not just hyperbole. And we need to understand that this is a massive implication here, that this is a real, literal place that Jesus believed in, knew existed. But the point of this parable, though, is not to give us a complete theology of the afterlife. Certainly there are implications of that Jesus believed in this literal place of torment, pain, and suffering for those who reject Christ and the word of God and word and deed. But the story continues. It shows us how bad Hades and hell is for the rich man. And and, and that is... So this is something we need to truly consider at what's at stake in life. Eternal joy versus eternal suffering and torment and anguish and flame. And and this is where so many people have stumbled over this truth, over this, this doctrine, because they just can't fathom how can a loving God punish someone eternally by sending them to an eternal hell. How can god do that if he is so loving and kind how can he do that and so it's safe to say that so many churches evangel- evangelical churches don't preach this doctrine anymore because they don't want to believe that anymore because so many people don't want to believe it anymore and the reason why so many have a problem with eternal punishment is one simple thing, is they do not realize who they have sinned against. That makes all the difference of whether you believe in the, this doctrine, the doctrine of hell or not. If, if you punch me in the face, if you come up to me and you slug me in the face, there's just not much I can do back to you. I might get angry for a while, I might fight back, but there's just not much else that I can do but if I call the cops and the cops come and then you punch the cop in the face, he's got a little bit more authority or she's got a little bit more authority to smack you on the ground, handcuff you and throw you in the cop car and take you straight to jail. And he ain't take you before the judge and then you go up to the judge and you punch the judge in the face. Oh, the judge has got a lot more authority, doesn't he? To throw you in prison for a while. Do you see what I'm getting at? If you punch the president in the face, you're toast. You see, it really doesn't matter what we do. We're sinners. What matters is and why it makes it eternal judgment is because of who we sinned against. Because of who we sinned against. I am not infinite and holy. The cop is not infinite and holy. The judge isn't infinite and holy. The president is not infinite and holy. But when you sin against the infinite and holy God, you will receive eternal punishment. That's infinite and holy and just. It's not the sin that we commit, but it's who we have sinned against. We've sinned against an infinitely holy God, and that's why his judgments are so infinitely and so horrible and so hard to fathom. And the reason why hell is not preached anymore is because so many have jettisoned the holiness of God. They've jettisoned the holiness of God God, long before. It's no longer important, and if that's no longer important, then why do we need hell? And we must resist the temptation that surrounds us to soften the eternal realities of hell because Jesus is not doing that. How could there ever be good news of the gospel if the only thing that he saves you from is your bad thoughts against yourself? How? We're still left eternally condemned. You know, the two things that Jesus speaks the most about Money and hell are both wrapped up in this one parable. So there is a contrast, a contrast in death. And now there is a contrast in eternity. This is where the story gets interesting, and this is where Jesus really starts to drive home the points of this parable. Look at 24. The rich man is in Hades, he's in torment. And he's able to see Abraham, and he cries out to Father Abraham for mercy. Now, now in his cry to, to Father Abraham for mercy, it tells us three things. It tells us, number one, that he believed himself to be a traditional Jew, or he was a traditional Jew, or he wouldn't have called himself, called Abraham Father. He considered himself a traditional Jew, probably upright and an upstanding guy like the Pharisees, like these guys. Second, The torment, again, is described as what? As a flame. As one needing water. Just a drip of water. Like being burnt but not consumed. This is the sting of eternal punishment. And third, what it also reveals to us in his request is that the rich man knew Lazarus. Because how else would he know? Hey, send Lazarus, that guy, I I think I remember him. Send him to come come quench my, my thirst for me. Think about that, especially what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 15. If you knew Lazarus, man, why didn't you care for him? That's the, the screaming reality in this passage. He knows Abraham as his father, but he didn't apply the word of God to his life in the care of Lazarus. And that's exactly what Abraham tells him in verse 25. And he tells him, that's the reason why you are where you are. Because even though you say you're this and you identify as as this, your life does not mark it, man. It It doesn't jive back. To what you say you believe. It's no secret. Again, last week we saw that right living doesn't always mean a right heart, does it? Neither does Jewishness mean a right heart. If you remember way back in the beginning of Luke, John the Baptist preached this message to the rich to the poor, to the Pharisees. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Think about that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Think about that. This guy is, Father Abraham? Man, I got rocks that can do that. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked them, "What then shall we do?" And he answered them, "Whoever has two tunics is to share with those with whom he has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise." That's the message of John the Baptist. That's the, the message that John preached. The rich man claimed to have Abraham as his father, but that was it. That's all he had, and that's all it meant to him, because he he bore no fruits of repentance. He bore no fruits of repentance, and in that case, the fruit of repentance would have been, share your food, share your clothes, but it's too late now. The axe has been laid to the tree, and now he's in torment but make no mistake here jesus is not uh jesus is describing here the pharisees because again remember the the pharisees they believe the same thing about their jewishness that they have abraham as their father and and that's what justifies me and that's why they rejected jesus's views on money it's why they ridiculed him it didn't matter to them how they viewed money we are children of abraham Now, we we may not encounter or even have this kind of attitude of this kind of Jewish attitude in our culture or maybe even our own hearts. But how many professing Christians can read this parable and others and then can confidently say, I am a child of God. I'm eternally secure. I believe in Jesus Christ. I confess that he is God. I am justified by faith alone. But the way that they use their money does not reflect any of that confession. How many? Galatians 5, 6 helps us even further here. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. We saw that also in Jeremiah chapter 9 but only faith working through what? Love. You see, there it is. The faith that justifies. Justification then brings about a purification of our hearts. A purification in this context a freedom from the love of money. And then toward what? Love. A love of God and a love for your brother. That's how Deuteronomy 15 is fulfilled by Christians. You see, the rich man is in hell because he delighted more in his luxuries for himself than a love for Lazarus. And during our time on earth, if we pursue other things... Than pursuing Jesus Christ, that single-minded pursuing of Him, which then works itself out in love for God and then love for others horizontally and vertically, then our treasures will only be what's on earth. Our treasures will only be on earth. It will only be temporary. It will only be failing. But, But the one who treasures Jesus Christ then no matter how bad things get like it did with Lazarus, how terrible the the suffering and the pain that you feel you experience on earth, the earth and the experience of that pain and suffering will be the only extent of hell that you will experience. In eternity you will be in heaven. Think about that. This isn't a social gospel. Using our money for the good of others and for the cause of Christ does not buy you a spot in heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. What it means here is that the way that we use our money, among other things, it reveals, it shows the evidences of God's grace. The evidence that our hearts, if they've been changed and transformed or not, Toward a love for others or a love for just our own luxuries. Money isn't, money is just the example. The money is just the example that, because the Pharisees loved money. That's the example that Jesus is is using here, but it reveals also so much about our own hearts, doesn't it? That's why in 1 John it says, if anyone has, worldly goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? And John only says that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he's already told us what the love of God does. It transforms our lives, changes our hearts, so we're no longer indifferent toward the Lazaruses. We no longer hate one another, but we love one another and we care for one another because the love of God abides in us. And the evidence of the love of God abiding in us is how we love one another. So there's a contrasting of eternity, but he continues with the contrast in the hearing. Verse 27 and on. The rich man's going through torment. There's no hope. The chasm is fixed. He's not getting across. He makes a request. Makes a request. Hey, send, send Lazarus back from the dead to go warn my brothers, my family, because they're in danger of coming here too. Now, what is that evidence of? That's evidence that this is a, a family affair, right? That his brothers were on track as he was the same track and that if nothing changes they would be just as doomed now you got to give it to him he's got a noble desire doesn't he i mean any family member who loves their other family members, right? We, we don't want them to go through suffering that we go through. We don't want them to experience. So he's got a noble plan. Man, I know what's going to change them. I know what's going to convince them. Send Lazarus, who everyone knows died to, send him back. And let them see someone who's come back from the dead so that they too will, will make the right changes in their life and then not have to suffer the way I'm suffering. But what does Abraham tell them? They've been given sufficient revelation. What they need has been given to them Moses and the prophets. Now, isn't that interesting? We just talked about the law and the prophets last last week. He's already given them the sufficient revelation to do what? To repent. To repent and then bear the marks of repentance. The law and the prophets are being fulfilled by Christ. And yet, they're still sufficient in seeing our great problem of sins, what we talked about last week. And our inability to be completely obedient to the law and to fulfill the law. It shows our our need for forgiveness, the trust in God, to put our faith in someone else to rescue us. And that is now revealed as we know as Christ, that we would receive an atonement that would far surpass all. And, And this message of what he tells in response of this is why Lazarus is experiencing heaven, because this is what he believed. If he didn't, he wouldn't be there. It's what he placed his faith in. Man, the the rich man is just getting, like, bad responses. Not what he wants to hear from Abraham, is it? But he responds back, and he's kind of insistent. He's like, come, send Lazarus. I know if you send him, they're going to listen to him. They're going to see him. They're going to change their mind. They're going to repent. But do his brothers, will his brothers see the scriptures? Or Actually, you know what? I think the reason why he insistently says again, because I think he knows his brothers, and his brothers don't listen or hear the word of God. They're just like him. They're good Jews. They hear the word of God, but that's all it is. It, it's not something that has transformed them or changed them. And I think that's why he sends it again. They don't listen to the word, man. You've got to send something better. They, they already go to church. They already read the Bible. They already do devotions. But their whole mindset and desire is more for money than actually hearing the Word of God and being shaped by it. But they must be able to see it and to hear it. Because if they did, they would repent and they would begin to see Christ as the fulfillment. You know, to so many, the Word of God isn't enough, is it? They, they just have to see more. That's why the miracles movement that so many want to manipulate and conjure are so intriguing to them because they have a desire to see more that the Word of God doesn't show them. You know, I remember being young as a Christian and I was thinking about evangelism and I just, I remember saying to myself, why, you know, why would, wouldn't it be easier that when I'm sharing the gospel I could just do some some miracle, and, and then they'll believe the words that I'm saying? I remember thinking that. But it's just not true. Abraham tells us, right? He tells us that's, they're not going to believe. I mean, we can raise someone from the dead, and they're not going to believe. They're not, they're not going to believe. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone raises from the dead. The matter of fact, Jesus was right there. And Jesus was already performing some of the most amazing miracles. And and a lot of people, they were astonished and they were amazed by Jesus and the miracles. But so many still didn't believe. So many still didn't repent. You know, I also find it interesting, and maybe this is why Jesus used the name Lazarus. Because when the real Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees got openly angry at Jesus, where now they were going to kill him. Think about that. He was literally raised from the dead, proving what Abraham says here. Nah, you can raise someone from the dead and still they're not going to believe. Pharisees, your hearts and your lives are the proof of that because when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they hardened their hearts even more to Jesus where they're openly working together now to kill Jesus. In fact, later on from John chapter 12, it actually says that they even went after Lazarus because they were so mad. They were ready to kill him think about that. No, we can raise someone from the dead. It's not going to work because those who have hardened their hearts toward the word of God will still refuse to see miracles and even the resurrection. And the same goes today. So many, and I'm not just talking about non-churchgoers, So many are so in love with the world, with their money, that they are deaf to the commands and the warnings of the word of God. And it would not even matter if God sent someone close in their family back from the dead to warn them. They might be freaked out. And they may be amazed by the the, the resurrection that just took place in front of them. But the real question is, will they be freaked out by their own sin and repent? And Abraham says, no, because what we need is what what God has already given us, the scriptures. The word of God is all we need, the preaching and teaching of the word of God, and then the responding by faith when we hear it and receive it and are obedient to it. That's why 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says what it says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, meaning the gospel, knowing whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Word of God, which are able to do what? To make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved, through the preaching of the Word of God. That is how we are transformed, that's how we are saved not by resurrections. Verse 16, we all know this verse. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Well, what's every good work? Every good work, what transformation does through salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ. That every good work is the loving the Lord and then loving each other being free from the love of money, being open-handed with these things toward others and toward the cause of Christ and the life of others. This parable is a tragic life of the Pharisees, the tragic life of the Pharisees who Jesus was speaking to. But it's also the tragic parable of millions, millions who only get their joy from the luxuries of life and what's in this world rather than grace-transformed love. And Jesus is that very life that has been set before us, that he embodies that radical freedom from the love of money and what it looks like and what a a deep delight in the service of others looks like. He is the example of that. Let's bring it all back together as we close. The point of this parable, with all of its details, it really has one end to it, and that end is very sad because those who love their money their position their comforts their social status and all the things that come with it more than they love and desire the lord and how that transforms our mindset toward the use of the wealth of others will reach that end and just like the rich man and eventually his brothers materialism is blinding and it's deafening to what is true it's deceiving even unto death. And so as we consider this word this morning, the, the warning that Jesus is giving us to hear the word of God and to heed the word of God, let us pray that the Lord God would free us from the failing promises of wealth and materialism and that through the word of God we will go to a deeper, fulfilling well and drink the living water and be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Would you help us to see these truths in light of our own lives and the light of our own own hearts that are demanding, asking very hard questions to our own hearts. And would you reveal the truths, O Lord, that we may repent and Turn to Christ or heed the warnings of our Savior. Help us respond together and may we be an encouragement in how we speak. In Christ's name, amen.